This is the Fantastic Books Podcast. The fantasy and sci-fi book review podcast for fantasy fanatics, book nerds, and lovers of lore and stories. Covering some of the most loved fantasy series as well as brand new novels. With your hosts, Anna and Sam. Let's see what we're reading this week. Sam, if there's one thing I've said on this podcast many times before, it's that I love audiobooks. They let me bring my stories with me anywhere I go, and I've listened to audiobooks while driving, cooking, working out, traveling, and even recently, kind of weirdly, well, at the dentist. (laughs) Our sponsor, Audible, can help bring your books with you wherever you go. Right now, our U.S. listeners can get a 30-day free trial of Audible, the destination for audiobooks and podcasts, when they go to audibletrial.com forward slash fanbookspod. On Audible, you can download and listen to thousands of audiobooks, including one that I myself narrated and catch up on all of your reading today. That's audibletrial.com forward slash fanbookspod. And to make it even easier, that link is in the show description. Happy listening. Welcome back, fantastic listeners. This is Sam. And Anna. And this week, we are covering Mistborn, The Final Empire, chapters 22 and 23. Before we get into these chapters, however, we do have a couple of announcements we'd like to share with you. The first being that you've probably noticed that we have a new name. We've simplified the podcast name just to the Fantastic Books Podcast. It's fantasy and sci-fi book reviews, so I think it'll help people find us a little bit more easily if they're interested in fantasy and sci-fi. And we just thought it would help streamline some of our marketing, some of our logos, and distance ourselves a little bit from J.K. Rowling, because we definitely lifted that from Fantastic Beasts and How to Find Them. And we just thought it was time for a little bit of a change. Yeah, so onward and upward. That being said, in addition to our branding changes, we have posted a schedule of upcoming episodes. And soon we will be celebrating our 100th episode (laughs) with something very special. Yep, we're not going to tell you exactly what it is. So be on the lookout for a fun bonus episode for our 100th, which will be the next next episode after this one. Crazy. I can't believe we've done a hundred of these. That's so much audio. So much fun. (laughs) So so many books. So many books. Speaking of so many books, on that schedule, we've also posted we have another mini series coming out soon. It's a book called Dot EXE by Robin Jeffrey. We've been recording that series with her already, and we've been having so much fun because it's a sci-fi murder mystery. So Sam and I have been puzzling through all of the clues with her, and you can come laugh at us if you listen to that series because we have made some pretty inaccurate guesses as to how this book turned out. In egregious (laughs) theories. My goodness. So feel free to get yourself a copy of .exe by Robin Jeffrey. We'll be posting a link in our show notes. That way you can get a copy and follow along with us. Highly recommend if you are a murder mystery fan. I'm a big fan of classic murder mysteries, and this definitely checks all the boxes while still having those fun sci-fi elements that are part of our genres. Yes. Personally, I was not the biggest fan of mysteries for a long time, and I had so much fun with this book. I really enjoyed dissecting it and coming up with theories and trying to parse out the clues. I think this really helped 
change my perspective and opinion on the genre as a whole. I had a lot of fun with this book. We can't wait to share it with you all. It's definitely a perfect summer read. I know I love reading in the summer. I mean, I love reading year round, but summer's perfect time to bring a book to the beach or the park or hanging out on your yard or wherever. So definitely check out our social media pages too at Fantastic Books Pod on Instagram and Facebook to see what other books we're reading. Yeah. Because we read more than Mistborn and Name of the Wind, we swear. (laughs) I know. Those are some of our favorites to cover, but you and I are constantly reading two or three books at a time, just enjoying so many different stories. And as much as we'd love an opportunity to share everything we can on the podcast, it's just not fully possible working full-time schedules. No, I wish we could. That would be awesome. Like I said, we post a lot on our social media pages, other book recommendations. And if you go to our website at fantasticbookspod.com, we have recommended reading lists that include both of our top books. And we change those up all the time depending on new editions or new books that we've read. So go check those out if you're looking for some summer reading inspiration. And when you do, definitely drop by our Spotify or iTunes pages and leave us a review too. It helps really grow the podcast. And we've been putting a lot of work in for almost 100 episodes now. Woo! (laughs) But I think that's it for announcements. We'll keep it quick. And then we can get right into Mistborn, the final empire. Chapter 22. Chapter 22's blurb talks about the deepness. And I like the name of the deepness as something sinister and dark because I think a lot of the times... In fantasy, especially, we have monsters coming from the deep, but not the deep itself being the monster. And I like this concept. And I started to see little bits and pieces of what's getting referenced here in this blurb in book two. So it's talking about great cities are getting laid low, crops are failing, the land is dying. And I'm starting to see that with the weird behavior of the mist that is occurring in the second book. And I kind of had that feeling that these were all interconnected, even in Mistborn. But I don't really understand much more than The Mist is a byproduct of something else, potentially. I know you've now finished the trilogy, so you cannot give any spoilers away. I will not. However, (laughs) I think you're on the right track. One thing I really enjoy about the threat of the deepness is that it's ethereal. You can't see it. You can't feel it. How do you defeat something you can't even touch? It's just like saying someone needs to defeat evil. What are you supposed to do with that? Yeah. It, it's very reminiscent to me of Sauron oh, in yeah. Lord of the Rings. Just where... sort of being like a force of evil. Right. I know he has a physical body and like a place you can go to, but he is more just this like symbol of evil and power permeating through the land. And I think that that's sort of what the deepness is, but I think it might be more related to corruption than evil because it does corrupt the land and take away like the nutrients and the vitality of the land is my guess. And I think that's how we ended up with this world being such a wasteland, especially because in addition to the blurb in this chapter, Vin is reading a section of the book that Sazed has been translating. In this section, they talk about Terrace being a really beautiful and lush landscape. And Sazed later in this chapter says, oh my gosh, Terrace is now this cold, barren, wintry wasteland. You can't grow anything there. Things were clearly different in this world before. I can't really say too much more because I haven't gotten far enough, but I think they're all connected. 
I know you're just sort of looking at me trying not to say. <laughs> I know. It's hard not to reveal anything. Maybe you shouldn't have read the whole series already. Oh, I couldn't put it down. <laughs> so just as an aside, I had finished the Hero of Ages, the third book in the Mistborn trilogy, while I was at work. And I have regrets. <laughs> Only because I couldn't savor it the way it's supposed to be like enjoyed. You should have just waited until you got home. I literally finished it, not realizing that that was the end point, And I was immediately interrupted with things I had to attend to. So I didn't even get a full moment to close the cover, close my eyes, kind of bask in that moment of completion and satisfaction. Ugh. And instead, I got it robbed from me. And it was a very important life lesson in that... <laughs> Anything worth doing or worth enjoying, you wait for the proper time to do so. All right. Well, now you know. This is my folly. Learn from me. <laughs> I won't do this when I get to the end. I will say, though, with this blurb and the threat of the deepness and this enlightenment for Sazed about the terrorist people and what the lands once looked like, this is monumental for them. You know, the mission of the terrorist people this whole time had been the preservation of knowledge pre the Lord Ruler's ascension. And they have the history, cultures, and religions of hundreds of societies except for their own. It's, you know, this great loss to them. So to find any scrap of information that's new and relevant to the terrorist people prior to the Lord Ruler is just such a treasure. I think it's because the Lord Ruler's been trying to wipe them out, and it becomes really hard to preserve your own culture in the face of essentially a genocide. Mm -hmm. And he's had a thousand years to hide the knowledge. Right. Like we can see the effects of even just a few hundred years of colonialism on cultures in our own world and how much knowledge is lost, especially when you do things like remove children from their families and force them to learn, you know, the colonizers culture. It's very real the way this has happened to the terrorist people. And so I think it is really sad that they have lost this, but it's also a huge plot point. Brandon Sanderson in his annotations says that he had to hide this information because the terrorist religion has lots of clues about what's going on built into it. So I think that probably ties into the prophecies and maybe some more stuff. So if Sazed knew all that, it wouldn't really work in terms of discovering things in the world and for the plot. Oh yeah, it is. it becomes monumental. Okay. So that is all I will say. <laughs> as we continue with our chapter analysis, as Vin is reading this passage from Elendi, she stumbles upon some information about ferrochemy and how the terrorist Pac-Man that they're traveling with are able to store their strength at night and become very weak and frail looking and then utilize that strength the next day, doing very impressive physical acts. Vin's definitely intrigued, but a little confused because she's not familiar with this system of abilities yet. It also mentions that it has something to do with the metal bracelets and earrings that they're always wearing. So when she goes and asks Sazed later in the chapter, she gets the full explanation. She weasels it out of him <laughs> about how ferrochemy works. But right now she's just reading this by herself and she's very confused also kind of hilarious because she does not like reading and I think it's irony when authors who obviously love reading and writing make a character who doesn't like reading or writing. 
Yeah, it's definitely a little on the nose, but it's fun. Yeah, it works. It makes sense because she grew up fairly uneducated. I know it said she learned to read as a child, but she never really had to. I think what I appreciate about a Vin's perspective on this is that she doesn't enjoy reading not because it's difficult or challenging. She doesn't enjoy it because she sees little in the practical application in how it benefits her day-to-day life. Yeah, she says she wants to do a lot more practicing her allomancy and things that are far more useful to her. And I get that. I understand that. I think also at this point in the story, Vin hasn't had the necessity to do any reading or research. No, and I know she does in book two because I've gotten to that part. Her perspective on reading and writing is more of a scholar's tool rather than a way to extricate more knowledge. I agree. On her way to seeing Sazed, Vin runs into Spook, and we have a delightful yet awkward interaction between the two of them (laughs) where Vin runs into him and asks, you know, is Doxin around? Is Kelsey around? Spook does his Eastern street slang. Vin understands part of it, but not everything. So he kind of drops a pretense and slowly articulates in the common tongue, as I like to call it. I find Spook very annoying. I don't like his character. I know you don't care for him. I absolutely love his character development throughout the trilogy. He became one of my favorites by the end. All right. Well, he's done nothing to really stand out or make me care about him in particular yet in the series. So oh, yeah. And that's definitely the point. He's just sort of like an awkward teenage boy hanging around. And that's exactly what happens in this scene. He awkwardly gives Vin a handkerchief, which she doesn't know what to do with, and then sort of dashes away. And she doesn't understand the implication of the gesture either. No, not at all. Obviously, we learn later in the chapter that the giving of a handkerchief expresses the desire for a young nobleman to seriously court someone. Spook has got the hots for Vin. Yeah, but Vin has got all her eyes on Ellen lately, so poor Spook is just kind of written off. Yep. Sorry, boy. (laughs) Spook is here because he's helping Dachshund move some weapons around, and so Vin is excited that Dachshund's here because she's hoping that he has news about Kelsier. And I think it's because Vin wants to do some more allomancy training against another Mistborn. Yeah, she's definitely recovered fully from her incident a couple months ago. She's finally back in action. She really is looking forward to being able to continue her Mistborn training. Unfortunately for her, Dachshund is in a meeting with Lord Renew and she can't come up with a reason why Lady Valette would need to interrupt a business meeting. She stays in character, and rather than barge in on them, she decides to go talk to Sazed to figure out what's going on with the handkerchief. (laughs) And when she visits Sazed, he's still translating the book, but this time he's not wearing glasses. And Vin notes this, and by the end of the conversation, she figures out why he's not wearing glasses. As Vin and Sazed have this conversation, Sazed is so excited about learning more about the terrorist people in their land pre the Lord Ruler's ascension. It's very cute, but very sad where he's like so excited about it, saying the text is amazing. It's a keeper's dream. It sucks that he's lost his own history and culture that it's exciting to find such small details. But I am glad that he's excited about finding them. 
the fact that they have the knowledge of all these other religions and cultures, yet their own is a mystery to them, is just such a ironic situation. I think it creates a really good internal mystery in a book that's not really a mystery book, but more of an action book, providing a situation where Sazed can give you basically any piece of information except for the useful one creates such a plot conundrum that I really do appreciate. And I think up until this chapter, I didn't even really consider or question the terrorist religion. I know that they'd mentioned the prophecies in the blurbs before, but I didn't really think that those were related to their religion for some reason, even though prophecies usually are religious. Mm hmm. Yeah, it was just one of those things I kind of took for granted. I was like, oh, wait, they would have their own system of like beliefs and culture. But because of the Lord Ruler, that's gone. I just assumed that being a keeper was the actual religion. I think I did too. And then realizing, no, they're only doing this so they can try to recover their own as well as maintain everyone else's. That I was like, oh, wait a minute. Right. I just kind of assumed Saza never brought it up, but yeah, we now find out that it's lost. Vin's very sassy in this moment, though, oh, when she's, she's starting sassy. to talk to Sazed about his history and the references in the book to this special power that keepers have, i.e. Ferukemi. But in order to get this information out of Sazed, she has to be really quite dramatic and say, oh, well, when Kelsier comes back, I won't really be able to help because I won't have any insight because I don't know what this is. And Sazed totally calls her out and says she's being very melodramatic, but he does give in and decide to tell her about what being a keeper is and what being a ferrochemist is. And essentially, ferrochemy grants the ability to store certain physical attributes inside bits of metal. Right. It's very similar to Allomancy. And even in the annotations, Brandon Sanderson says that in his original drafts, ferrochemy was called hemallergy which he actually saves for a different magic system later down the line. For that third magic system, it's very fitting once you understand the process and what it is. Well, just going on word knowledge, hemallergy looks like like hemoglobin and that root word hema, which is blood. So I'm going to just guess that it's some sort of blood-based magic. I don't know. I know you know. I say nothing. <laughs> <laughs> But I think it's pretty cool that he has magic systems that pull on the same types of base items. So these are both metals, and ferrochemists and alamancers use the metals in different ways. Yeah, definitely solidifies the theme that of this world and how people can display their abilities. It very much grounds the world around them. I agree. Something that's also really interesting about this conversation is that Sazed mentions that ferrochemists used to be a lot more common, as common as maybe Alamancers or Mistborn, or even maybe more common. And what I think is kind of cool is this parallel development between you have the art of Alamancy creates Mistings or Mistborn, and then you have the art of ferrochemy now creates people called Keepers. But Keepers were founded after the Lord Ruler tried to wipe out their religion. So I'm wondering... If it's more like the Pac-Men were the original ferrochemists, 
because they had these special abilities and then they became keepers and used their special abilities less so for traveling distances and maneuvering through mountains and more so for storing knowledge and increasing their memories. That's exactly it. Okay, cool. Yeah, Yeah. 100% nailed it. Yeah, because the keepers each have like a specific area of interest, but they all remember the whole of all human history that they've gathered up. They've done this because Lord Ruler tried to wipe them out. And then keepers were founded, I think, three centuries after the Lord Ruler came to power. Yes. And before that, he had been just trying to systematically destroy them. We know that now that that's because he himself is a fairy chemist and is trying to have his secret remain hidden, but it also plays into the other parts of this world where the Lord Ruler has breeding programs and the terrorist stewards have this weird position in society where they're allowed to exist sort of on the fringes. You know, in the case of Sazed, like he's been made a eunuch and that they live in this really downtrodden place because of the Lord Ruler's relationship with Ferrochemi. Right, because essentially he wants to prevent anyone else from being both a ferrochemist and a misborn. Right. Because that's the big secret. Yeah, you just can't spoil anything for me. No. For book three. Something else that the Lord Ruler does is he wears metal, and it creates this interesting dynamic between noble people wanting to emulate the Lord Ruler's fashions, because that's how fashion would work, is they would look to the top of the social structure. But it's actually dangerous for them to wear medals, obviously, because that makes them vulnerable to Mistborn. So a lot of them wear metal-colored wood, so painted wood, and it creates this sort of strange dynamic in the power of the Lord Ruler and then the nobles, and then only Ska have the quote-unquote privilege of wearing metal, but it's actually because it's a detriment if you wear it. Yeah, it's interesting how... The allure through the forbidden happens. Right. Where the Lord Ruler has his reasons for wearing all that metal. People think it's almost arrogance, like he's untouchable, like who would dare challenge him? Right. So it looks like other noblemen should want to emulate that if they think themselves really powerful. But logistically, it's a bad idea for them too. When in reality, the Lord Ruler is a ferrochemist and... A misborn. But as we continue, we get a lot of insight from Sazed about the rest of the crew, and it kind of shows that Vin unintentionally is a little self-centered and isn't used to the idea of having friends and let alone asking about their lives. Yeah, it's a little bit rude almost, unintentionally, like you said. But I think it's ironic too, because at the beginning of the chapter, she is talking about how Dachshund and Renew are having a meeting and she's not included and thinking to herself that the other members of the crew still see her as an outsider, whereas some of this alienation is a bit self-inflicted because she's just never bothered to learn anything about any of her crew members. So we find out that Ham has a family and we find out that Dachshund has a pretty tragic past. He's a plantation ska and then Saza doesn't tell too much more because it's not his story to tell. And Vin goes and talks to Dachshund later. But she is shocked that people have lives outside of this crew. Except for maybe Breeze because he's, as Saza says, too self-absorbed. Yes. I wasn't sure if 
Breeze is supposed to be gay or or if he's just really self-centered. Without giving anything away. I know he's involved with like a younger woman in book two. When you're a soother and you're very good at emotionally manipulating people, oh. you can kind of go around of two routes. You can either be uh, someone who has a lot of partners or you remove yourself from that altogether because then you wonder what interaction is genuine or not. Ooh, it's like a love potion. Yeah. Do they oh, love me for wow. me or is it my, my influence, no matter how light and unintentional? Oh, that sucks. But it's also like part of you. So like you can't ever like control it. It's like a subconscious it. thing. Like, you, you know, you want people to like you. I think they talk about it. Maybe you and I talked about it on a different episode. Is Kelsier a really good soother? Or is he just really charismatic? And is there even a difference? Right. Like you could be super charismatic and still take that route of having tons of people fawning over you without being a soother at all. Or you could be a soother and have this unnatural ability to make people like you but is being extremely charismatic and having an uncanny ability to make people like you any different. Exactly. And I think that's something that may just remain a fan theory unless we get any insight from Brandon Sanderson himself. It might be in the annotations at some point because I know we haven't read all of those yet. I love the idea that like, although he is very charismatic. I like the idea that Kelsier is... A stronger soother than we thought. Right, where, you know, Vin talks about, especially at the end of the book, of, you know, this was his specialty, pushing and pulling. But what if it wasn't? What if it was soothing? I know. It's just, it's fun to speculate. I do, on the flip side, like the idea of, like I just said, what's the difference between being really charismatic and a soother? Like, you could be a really weak pewter burner, or you could just be a really strong human being. Is there that much of a difference? Yeah, it all kind of just evens out in the end. When we're all super, no one is. Literally, <laughs> great quote. But you know what I mean. It's, it's interesting when it's emotional abilities and not necessarily strictly magical abilities that people have because you could see those abilities coming up in regular personality traits regardless of allomancy or not. Yeah. Getting back to Vin, she is asking Sazed about the handkerchief and about all her her teammates. She's not interested in Spook at all, but definitely offends Sazed a little bit. Yeah, there. here's the quote, and it's very tactful on Sazed's part, but also kind of really hammers home the whole idea of, you know, count your blessings, where he says, one would think, mistress, that you would appreciate the opportunities you have not everyone is so fortunate. And Vin immediately mentally reels, is like, oh my God, that's right, he's a eunuch, I'm an idiot. Yeah, Vin needs to be a little bit more self-aware about her team members. And I mean, I think she that- also is just a teenager too, so. Right, but I think it's that kind of time where like she wants to be included in the crew and wants to be seen as an adult, and she's getting a little bit of recognition of her own lack of awareness about the people around her. And I think from this point on, she's a little bit better about connecting with her teammates and being a little bit more part of things instead of isolating herself from them. Like she goes and hangs out with them in the kitchen at the end of the day and and stuff like that, you know, things she wasn't doing at the beginning of the book. Right, like take the time to get to know your homies. 
Right. It helps with the trust, too. And speaking of which, she goes to talk to Dachshund and really gets to know him. Yeah, this is a very important conversation where Vin asks Dachshund about his life growing up on the ska plantation. And I will give Dachshund this credit where he's kind of a backburner guy. He's the one that acts behind the scenes, making things happen. You know, he's clearly very intelligent, organized, because he essentially makes Kelsier's plans a reality. He's the go-to guy. But he's the only one on the crew who's not Misting or Mistborn. So he's got a unique position and he does do his job really well. He's the Sokka of the group. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, except Sokka's not the like planning mastermind. Eh, sometimes. 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 All the points in charisma. <laughs> As Vin asks Dachshund about his life growing up, he's a very realistic and even keel perspective on things about how even though he grew up on a ska plantation, he was really fortunate where, you know, some people in the cities have it worse. And although they had to work hard, it wasn't necessarily harder work than those in the mills or the forges. He does mention that the lord that was in charge of his plantation, he didn't kill the elderly unless they were really old and unable to work. He didn't overly beat his ska. These acts of cruelty and horrible things like rape and murder are just so allowed by the nobility that they don't even really blink an eye and it's expected on the ska perspective that these things happen to them and it's better when they don't happen all the time but the like it's just it's so sad and it's so institutionalized and that's what makes it such a tragedy yes it's just part of the way things are and no one is questioning it well not even that they're questioning it they don't even have the power to stop it right but it's not even like they're all sitting around going oh we can't believe this is happening we can't believe this is happening a lot of the ska are so downtrodden that they're saying well that's just how it goes that's fair a thousand years of uh this this way of life yeah it just gets into their psyche and I do like that in Brandon Sanderson's annotation, he goes on to say that these themes aren't necessarily about a book having, you know, sex as in like a sexual book, but this is an important theme to catalyze characters into action. I think it really shows all the different ways society is corrupt too. It's not just corrupt in... It's financial and labor production ways where the scar are at the bottom. It's corrupt in moral ways, physical and sexual ways, where the ska aren't even treated like people anymore. They're just objects. And I think it's pretty important to have all those different aspects in there to show how permeated the culture is with just letting anything and everything happen to the ska and not caring. They're like a colony of ants to these people. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you step on them or smush them. Like, there will always be more worker ants. It's very messed up. Oh, it's horrible. It's good to see that Kelsey and friends are fighting the good fight. Exactly. And Dachshund's big character motivation is revealed in this conversation. So even though he says his life on the plantation wasn't that bad, he had to leave it and come to the city and change and start to work for Kelsier and fight this whole situation because he was in love with this girl from the plantation. And, and unfortunately, she was taken by a noble and killed. Exactly. Raped and killed. 
just because if you have sex with a Scott woman, you have to kill them after so that no quote-unquote half-breed children could be born. Yeah, just horrendous. That was Dachshund's snapping point. Yep. Dachshund says that despite all the tragedy that have befallen the Scott people, they still hope and find love and continue to fight and struggle on. And how even this crew is trying to resist a god that is potentially just going to end up killing them all anyways. And it's a very sobering thought. But, you know, what is life without hope? I think that's such an important part of this book. And it's such a universal human feeling that I think it really plays a powerful role in the story. Like we've seen even in our own world and in this world, obviously, people at rock bottom, like you said, like their God is just going to slaughter them all. What hope of a future do they have? But they're still here making friends and falling in love and they have their families. And you can see that even in human history, like times have looked really terrible and horrible for people, but you do still cling to your friends and family and you have hope that the future will get better. And I think that that is really a universal human message and what makes this book a really powerful story. Yes, well said. Thank you. Unfortunately, Vin does not really want to hear what Dachshund has to <laughs> say about the realities of their world and that the noblemen do things like this all the time. She's, again, self-centered with her thoughts and motivations with this conversation. Yeah, definitely thinking about the people she knows at the balls, in particular Ellen, but saying that, oh, well, you know, a lot of a lot of them don't go to the brothels or a lot of them won't kill Scott women. Like, it, it couldn't possibly be that. And this is where the conversation takes a turn. Doxon looks at her as if he's kind of just seeing her for the first time and realizes how naive she is where he says, Vin, you know, it's not just a few noblemen. This is all noblemen. This is why we're here. This is why Kelsier's killing all the nobles. They're terrible monsters. And you should know this by now. And I know in the next chapter, we get the rebuke of this argument that not all the noblemen are bad, but I think it's the same argument of like, the system here is broken. If people can get away with rape and murder and the other people in their social class let them do it and are bystanders to it, the whole thing's messed up. The oh, whole yeah. system's got to get scratched and started from the beginning, which is what Kelsier is trying to do. Vin is having a really tough time reconciling this, and I think she's still seeing the world as either black or white and not realizing how much gray area there can be. And even with th this conversation with Doxon, he just is resigned about this, you know? He is resolute in his opinion that the nobility can't be redeemed and that they all need to go. Right. So even he's seeing things in black and white. And I feel for Vin in the fact that the reason for this whole defense for the nobility is the fact that she's in love with Ellen. But just a few chapters prior where she saw that Ska child get executed in a lawn. Right. Like, how is she forgetting this? Right. She even says to herself. Don't forget about the ash because you see a little silk. This is why we're fighting. And I think, you know, she's got her love goggles on and it's blinding <laughs> her to the reality. It is. It's definitely tough. And I know that he's trying to balance the Kelsier approach of like kill everyone. Everything's messed up. And the Vin approach of like, well, not all the individual people are bad. And those are very realistic reactions to this situation. 
but it is frustrating from a reader's perspective when we have to see Vin continually be reminded that there are these horrors and atrocities going on all around her being committed by the people she's now thinking of as her noble friends. Yeah, for someone who's such a harsh realist at times, it... She sticks her head in the sand really fast sometimes. A little bit, because she, I think for the first time, is finding acceptance and enjoying the luxury and grandeur of the nobility. She wants to feel like she belongs to this, so I think that's her defense mechanism, is trying to ignore the ugly truth. It's exactly the plot in all high school movies where you have the nerd gets accepted by the popular crew all of a sudden and then turns her back on her original friends. Yeah. And she needs to not be that way. (laughs) Oh, you're better than this, Vin. Right? Like, don't forget your entire, like, 17 years of life before this. Chapter 23. This is a very interesting chapter. And it's got a very weird blurb at the beginning, too. There's not a lot going on. We can just tell from the progression of these blurbs that Alundi is traveling. We can only presume to the Well of Ascension, and they are getting closer and closer. But now in this blurb, he's hearing thumping sounds from above, like drums or pulsings from the mountains that draw him in with each beat. And I know from book two that Vin starts to hear this. I have no idea what this is. Is this the heartbeat of the deepness? Is this... Uh, the spirit of Mistborns, I have no idea. I cannot confirm or deny anything without spoiling. However, I'm glad you're paying attention and you do get the answers to this and it's a very satisfying revelation. Okay. I really want to finish book two, but it's hard to currently read it and cover the first book in Mistborn. I'm definitely getting characters confused and turned around. So I'll keep chugging along, but I, ugh, it's hard. I know. It's it so may hard. end up having to be that we conclude this for you to properly enjoy the rest of it. Yeah. I want to give Mistborn its full attention before I move on to Well of Ascension, potentially. I say that now, but I might go read it later. <laughs> so within chapter 23, we see that Vin has been making some headway at these balls. She now accompanies a date and engages in courtly gossip with a group of younger nobles. They're pretty boring, uh, which is to be expected from (laughs) this class of nobility. They're just aimlessly gossiping. They're talking about some of the house war stuff and different allies and the people called the Geffenry brothers were just killed. And Vin, despite her confusion in the end of the previous chapter, is thinking this whole time that Ugh, all these people can think about is stupid stuff, even though your friends are getting killed. Like, one of them asks if one of the people who got killed was a better dancer than him. Like, it's just very petty and empty. Yes. And I think there's not a lot of substance to the conversation. It's just to remind us that this is what the nobility is like. I think it's a good time jump that Vin has, as you said, moved forward and made progress in the balls. I wouldn't have wanted to see all of that happening on screen. I like that we get these jumps ahead because I think the balls are half boring stuff like this and then half important stuff like Ellen and some spying. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, we get this whole lame conversation about the boys getting together to play some card game at some point later in the week and they call over an obligator 
to bear witness and hold one of the boys accountable that he'll be there for this card game. And it's just so wasteful. I do like that we get this explanation of what the obligators do. It's not really like they're priests in a religion where they're worried about the people of the religion and like spiritualism, but they're more worried about the economics and the business aspects of the empire. So they are a weird fusion of priests, but they're more like business and government administrators. So I think that was the whole point of this scene was to see that that's how they operate. Yeah, they bear witness to transactions, exchanges, meetings, and they essentially are the eyes and ears of the empire for the Lord Ruler. Yeah, the other important thing we get in this conversation is just the introduction of Lady Cliss. She's framed as a court gossip, but by the end of the book, we find out that she's actually a informant and a soother. Yeah. So she'll come back up again at the end, but she's just sort of tossed in amongst this group of nobles. So Vin is about as bored as we are with this conversation. She decides that she's going to get out of there. And when she gets back, she'll write down all of the information she's collected up at this ball. But as she goes to leave, Cliss tries to lure her in with some extra gossip about the ministry. And what Cliss has somehow found out, which we don't know at the time, but because she is a informant, has found out that the Inquisitors have hit twice as many ska thieving bands in the last few months, and they found another band this afternoon that's not far from where they currently are, which makes Vin get very nervous that Clubs' shop got hit. Because it's not far from here. Right. There is a little aside that insinuates that one of the nobles in this group got robbed by a ska thieving crew, and that it's beyond embarrassing because, again... The nobles think of Ska as unintelligent and lesser people. So to be fooled by someone like this proves how unintelligent and less that you are. They even say something along the lines of, isn't the food and the clothes we hand out to them enough? Why are they still stealing from us? Yeah, they're just... They're just gross. Completely out of touch and gross people. Horrible. Speaking of horrible... Who else joins this crew? But Big Bully Lady Shan. Alrighty. <laughs> As an aside, the audiobook narrator who does the voice for Lady Shan, I know he's trying to do like a breathy, deep, sultry voice, but because the narrator already has such a deep, sultry voice, <laughs> it just sounds ridiculous. It's so funny to me. I don't think I listened to that part on audiobook. I'll oh have to my go God. back. Like there's a point where the narrator acts as Lady Shannon and goes, excuse us, ladies. And it just, <laughs> it sounds so comical. I was like, Excuse die. us, ladies. That's hilarious. It's such a baritone. Yeah, I, that's not what I was picturing for her. Because obviously, you know, Lady Shannon's described as like flawless, a beauty, like the epitome of what a noble woman should aspire to look like. Right, like she is the top woman in this whole society She's like supermodel status. But I would love the character flaw of her having like a disturbingly deep voice. <laughs> but Shan is just around to believe in because she hasn't been very useful about getting information on Ellen for her. Right. So she just shows up to remind Vin that she should be checking Ellen's books 
when he comes around. And then also just spends the rest of the time insulting her for losing Ellen's attention and being like a low, sad, ugly child. Yeah. In comparison to herself. Oh, I absolutely love the showdown at the end between Shan and Vin. Oh, she got what was coming to her. She was so rude and mean this whole time. But I just love the arrogance and then just completely taken down by someone you dismissed. Yeah, it's great. So good. I think that that's one of my favorite parts of the end of the book. Not that it's quite revenge or vengeance, but, you know, she gets what's coming to her and it's good. Yeah, you don't get to be that mean and get away with it. Mm hmm. That's how I feel, especially not in books, because there's always like justice for those things. Yeah. Vin just calms herself and and decides to walk away. She doesn't want to rise to Shan's bait, essentially. And as she does, she ends up running into Ellen, who she hasn't seen in a while. This is a tough situation because it seems like Ellen's been avoiding her, but Vin's also been avoiding her feelings about Ellen, especially with her whole conversation with Dachshund. And it all just comes to a boil. And I think everyone has experienced a moment like this at least once in their life. Oh, when you want to say something and the delivery comes out all wrong because you're too emotional. And you can't get the words out correctly and you just end up crying. Yes, this has definitely happened to me and it's horrible. Because then you get mad that you're crying. You can't make your point. And then you feel like they're dismissing you because you're not being rational. You're just crying. You're not saying what you need to say. Yeah, and so you could tell... It's off to a terrible start where she she sees Ellen and then she just says, you've been avoiding me. And it just, you know, it's the beginning of that ice cracking and like the cold water rushing to the surface. I think he thought at first she was being funny, but halfway through his explanation, she realizes that she's shaking. So like you can tell she's trying to contain herself so badly, but it's not working. I do like that. They have this really honest moment with each other. Like, it's guard comes down. And I like the way that Ellen treats Vin in this situation. Because I think, especially when you're young and you're an emotional girl, sometimes guys, if they're not the right maturity level for you, can just be like, stop crying. Why are you crying? And I was worried that Ellen was going to be snooty in this situation. But he is very open with her. Oh, he's completely candid, and I was surprised that he answered her question and didn't just act offended and ignore it and not respond. I think this is the first moment I see the two of them kind of sparking with each other. Like, they've been flirty with each other in a sort of, like, fake annoyed way before, but this is the first time I've seen them have a real honest conversation about their feelings and their personal histories. And it goes very well. And you can tell that, like, even though they're coming from opposite sides of the social structure and the economic structure, they have kindred spirits with each other. Yes. Perfect foil characters. I'll say it again and again. Uh, so, so what happens here, though, in this conversation is... Vin kind of just blurts it out <laughs> and uh, is like, have you ever slept with a ska woman? <laughs> and Ellen doesn't realize... She's upset by this in the essence that what happens to the ska is very wrong. I think for a moment he thinks she's upset because it's... Like a jealousy thing? Yeah, like, you know, you've been with other women. But at the same time, he clearly has 
trauma in his past about this topic because he reveals that his father made him sleep with someone when he was 13 and then they killed her afterwards and after he learned this he never did this again vin has this moment where she empathizes with ellen and sees that clearly not all the nobility are monsters like she's led to believe and that the world is not black and white that maybe a third of the population of nobility engages in this behavior in Luthadel, but it's obviously wrong in that it shouldn't continue and Ellen wishes there's more that could be done to prevent this. Right. He's definitely self-aware of the situation, whereas I think some of the other noblemen just turn a blind eye and say that's the way things are. Ellen at least expresses interest in changing opinions and changing the treatment of Ska and the future. So I think there's obviously hope for him, and we know he becomes a huge power player in the later books and really does try to improve the lives of people. Oh, I love Ellen's character. I mean, this book, he's very briefly presented. Yeah, we don't get too much of him. And even in Brandon Sanderson's annotations, he says that he doesn't get enough time with Ellen as much as he would like. It's kind of crazy that you can have a book that's how many pages is this? 500? Mm -hmm. And still not have enough time to get in all the character development you want to fit in there. As far as character arcs go, now finishing this trilogy, I think Ellen had one of the best character arcs I've experienced in either television or book media. Wow. I loved it. I thought he was a great character. His growth is just very satisfying. I felt... Like, I empathize a lot with Ellen's frustrations and trials and challenges. I think his character was done justice. All right. I'm excited. I'm excited to keep reading. I know, because you weren't a huge proponent of Team Ellen. Well, he just doesn't get, like, a lot going on in this book. No, and, you know... I don't dislike him. I just think he's more there as a plot device and a way to provide information in this book. That, and I think he also is just kind of painted as the the rebellious know-it-all kind of guy and thinks of himself as, like, so cool and edgy as a young philosophizer and, you know, no one could possibly understand him. Yeah, it's not my favorite trope. No. So, in that regard, I can understand your sentiment. However, with the expansive novels, he gets supremely better. Yeah, I don't dislike him. I just think he's a bit sheltered at this point but also he's stuck under his father's thumb which is a tough place to have any kind of character development but vin has a little bit of character development in this conversation too because as soon as she realizes that she was mad about this revelation of scob women in regards to ellen specifically and she finds out he's not an offender She's not as mad about the whole thing. And then she realizes that she's starting to think like the other nobility who are letting these things happen. And she gets frustrated with herself. And I think she needs to keep her eyes on the goal. Mm -hmm. And then because she has a moment of weakness, tells Ellen that she hung out with the plantation ska more so than she had originally led him to believe and that they're just like them. They're intelligent. Some of them are even smarter than him even though they're not educated they still have intelligence they are just regular people and i actually 
the first time reading this got very scared for Vin. I did too. I wasn't sure if we could trust Ellen. However, I'm glad she opened up to him because he did for her. And I think that's the equivalent exchange or the respect for one another to, you know, reciprocate. I think when you have a vulnerable moment with someone, it feels natural to share something back with them. And then you have that like moment of shared secrets together. Yes. It's like a sleepover. Like when you tell all your secrets to your friends when you're a kid and then you're better friends after that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) As the evening continues, they finish their conversation with Ellen giving Vin a handkerchief. Yeah, this was pretty big. And I think obviously now that Vin knows what handkerchiefs mean, she's pretty excited about this. She does offer it back to him and Ellen tells her that she can keep it. I think he says it wasn't intended to be simply functional. Yes. Which is a pretty smooth line. Yeah, not too shabby. He'd been actually keeping away from her to jump back to her original accusation because he felt like she was getting really caught up in the politics of the court and felt that he could be detrimental to her if she actually wanted to be involved in courtly society because he's definitely seen as a bit of a rebel. But at the same time, I think he also tries to remove himself from politics because he doesn't like a lot of the people there. And Vin called him out because he's on the top of the political structure. And so he has that luxury where she doesn't. Right. In that conversation, I was worried that Ellen would almost see through Vin's intentions that she's almost playing the game, playing the game for more than just benefit of herself. She's playing the players who are playing the game. Right. And I I'm glad he that see he that. sees that and not just she's getting caught up in the game. Right. That being said, Ellen does have to depart and he's going to go meet with his homies and do their whole philosophizing rap sesh. <laughs> and as Vin makes her way back to her table with Sazed, he sees her makeup all in distress and he notices another handkerchief and there's the line, you have been busy. <laughs> and I thought that was just fun. But Vin is very urgent. She asks Sazed, can you let me do what I need to do and use some alamancy to spy? On Elland? Yes. Yeah, because he's hanging out with Leckle and Hastings, who are his family's political enemies. So she's intrigued by this meeting. Sazed reluctantly lets her go. He wants her to be careful, which he knows is a silly thing to say to a Mistborn, but he lets her go out into the darkness. Only after checking to make sure her side is okay, though. Yeah. In classic teenage fashion, I'm fine. It's been fine for ages. Just let me go. (laughs) Sazed's like a little dad to her sometimes. It's cute. I love it. Like a dad and a friend. So he lets her go. I think this is the first time we get to see Vin use Alamancy since her accident, and she is so excited. She flies up into the air, climbs up the tower, up towards where Ellen is, crouches along, creeps around. She's having a great time out in the mists because she hasn't been able to go out there. And then when she gets to the top and starts to hear their conversation, she actually overhears Ellen talking about herself in pretty flattering ways. First off, he says she's attractive. But then he also says she's intelligent and kind-hearted. She even helped Ska runaways on her plantation and could be a good addition to their group. But the boys are being a boys club and don't want her to come. 
which sucks, but whatever. So then they just shift their conversation into talking about books. Vin is less interested about this part. Obviously, she doesn't know which books they're talking about, and so it's pretty bland. Where Ellen is a scholar at his core, and he likes to compare these books and different principles and what would be a perfect ruling system if the Lord Ruler wasn't in power. Oh, if only he knew. Exactly. Some of these guys have their thoughts, but they're kind of like, well, what are we going to do? Just speculate all this? Ellen brings but up Ellen the really point. wants to put it into action, whereas the other houses are weaker houses than his. They feel like they can't do anything to make a change. They realize the fact that they will be inheriting their houses in the future, that they can make changes to make Luthadel a better place to be. But only Ellen is really believing that. The other nobility think it's interesting ideas, but I don't think they put any stock in his words. They don't think it's actually ever going to matter and they're not going to change anything. Again, they're all institutionalized. Well, it won't matter because by the end of the book, the Lord Ruler's dead. Their houses will have fallen and everything will be different. (laughs) Boy. Things sure are going to be different. (laughs) As Vin continues her espionage and spying, she runs into Kelsier. He startles her so badly she almost falls off this tower. Yeah. Kelsier reveals that he's spied on this group getting together and discussing politics and philosophy several times now, where Vin says, oh, we could potentially bring them in. They could be an asset to our group. They have knowledge of the noble houses and the hierarchy, and we could all work together to overthrow the Lord Ruler, where Kelsier is like, absolutely not. These are just some puffed up noble sons that have the power and privilege to question the Lord Ruler's practices and theorize how they would do such a better job when they inherit their family's house. What they forget is that they're inheriting not just the houses, but the whole economic system. They can't just suddenly change everything and make it operate differently. It has to get torn down and then rebuilt. Yes. And, you know, there's a certain obligation and sense of duty that comes with running these great houses. So Kelsier says no to Vin's suggestion, which I find interesting that this entire time Ellen and Vin are thinking about collaboration and joining forces as a way of changing the future, whereas Kelsier is thinking that's the last thing he ever wants to do. And I like sort of, I guess. I don't know. I have mixed feelings about the fact that Brandon Sanderson does sort of let both things happen. Like, Kelsier succeeds in taking down the Lord Ruler. He has the extreme views, and you have to have that there. But then during the rebuild process, you have the Ellen-Vin duo doing more of a collaborative style with people across different backgrounds and different classes. And I think that that actually helps build the better future. And without giving too much away... And the subsequent books, you see how both ideologies come to clash. Right, like they do seem quite different. Because I think if Kelsier were to have survived, his rebuilt world would just be the ska on top and the nobles on bottom, and it would be exactly the same structure, just flipped. Yeah. But there would still be lots of oppression. Whereas I think Ellen, especially with Vin's help, is looking for more equality. Yes, absolutely. 
So unfortunately, Kelsier just says no in this moment, and they don't <laughs> get any help from Ellen, who I think could be a valuable asset, but it's not the right time. But what time it is, is time to leave the party. Let's blow this pop stain. <laughs> it was a bit of a weird transition, but just trying to bring us to the conclusion of this chapter, which is that Vin has to go back out and meet Sazed at the bottom of the tower, but she's covered in ash, so she is told by Kelsier to put a cloak on over herself to keep up appearances. And then they both just jump off into the mists. I'll catch you back at the secret hideout. Yeah. Missed out. Missed out. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that is the perfect place to end our episode this evening. Yeah, we got a lot of character development and backstories on especially Dachshund, Sazed, and Ellen. And I like that we're getting depth to them, not from how their characters are necessarily moving forward, but from the pasts that they've had. And I think it's awesome to develop the characters past in the middle of a book. I love lore. I love getting background information on characters. So it's nice to get more perspective on some of these essential characters in the book. Right. And there's never an info dump with Brandon Sanderson, at least in this series. No, he's been pretty... Good about peppering it throughout. Yeah, efficient was the word I was looking for. Ah, yes, 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 yes. So... That being said, this concludes our episode of chapters 22 and 23. Next time will be chapters 24 and 25, which will put us about two-thirds of the way through the book, I think. And like we mentioned at the beginning of this episode, don't forget to check out .exe by Robin Jeffrey. We'll drop a link in the show notes. Please check out our new and updated social media pages at Fantastic Books Pod or at fantasticbookspod.com. And as always, do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps us grow. And as Sam always says, Until next time, listeners, happy reading. Thanks, listeners. If you're looking for more, check us out at fantasticbookspod.com where we have book reviews, reading list suggestions, merch, and you can even send us a message. Or find us on Facebook and Instagram at Fantastic Books Pod. And if you like what you've been hearing, don't forget to leave us a review. Thanks. Thanks.